I've been working at this place for a year. I've never sold one. And I sold like three to this lady last night. And I was like, I was like, yeah, this is the first one I've ever sold. And she said to her friend, she's like, see that? I'm his first. And the lady's like, I highly doubt it. <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. I was thinking I wrote down some shout outs on my phone and I want to see if I remember all of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah a lot yeah. of people, dude, over yeah. the past years. A lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And then watching the the humble podcast and, and the Hannah bringing it back to like wow yeah it's funny with Hannah she like kept forgetting people so we'd like have her come she'd like come oh wait and come and sit down again yeah um, I know I quit cigs but I'm on, hooked on this thing now which is it's like been, almost, it's almost worse <laughs> no I because of the why is it worse why that's you? too convenient <laughs> <laughs> it's true it's probably cleaner you know less carcinogens right yeah although we don't really know because it hasn't we haven't had a generation that's done it for years yet to have really the data. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, right. Good evening and welcome. Let's get this cracking. And uh, I don't know if you people at home are going to believe this, but we got another one-of-a-kind guest for you today. Someone who's very dear to my heart, Mr. Andy Lugo. Welcome yeah. to Golden Hour. Thanks for having me. Yes. It's uh, typically, we takes us numerous times of trying to get at people, you know, either unblown it or their schedule's tight, so hyped to finally get you in here. Cool. Yeah. I'm psyched to be here. Yeah. We go back, man. We go way, way back. I know we referenced you on um, Hannah's episode talking about the B-side because, you know, that's where we first met back in the day. Oh, yeah. You were setting up my first skateboard ever. I think <laughs> I told you this not too long ago, but, yeah, Andy actually sold me my first ever brand new complete and set it up, which is, thank you. <laughs> of course, man. I, it was uh, a pleasure, I mean, to be able to to be part of that scene and coming from so many different places before the B-side, and that that's the one part of, I think, living in Burlington and the B-side in general, is that it was like the third life that I'd lived. Yeah, because you're originally from California, right? Originally from Southern California, San Bernardino, where I went to high school. Okay. And that was a whole other world of the L.A. riots and skate, skateboarding with Matt Hensley and Eric Costin in no way at their level, but like... That was, they lived right around that area. Crazy. And uh, <clears throat> being able to watch Eric Costin do his thing with his crew at a, at a skate shop that was near where I lived, it was very similar to the B-side, and he still had, had gotten sponsored yet. He was getting flow boards from uh, El Gato, El Guerra from 8th Street. Oh, damn. He was getting his boards before he actually had his own pro model but I just remember him rolling up on the scene and everybody knew who he was because he was doing switch tray flips and he was like what is this dude doing yeah yeah and talking about apparent. serious it was, a, it was evident very it was funny. evident <laughs> yeah. this guy was serious and then Southern California how serious skaters were out there mm -hmm. there wasn't it was hard to to skate when anybody like that rolled up. You just sat down. Yeah, it probably know? was intimidating, right? <laughs> yeah, it yeah, was. No doubt. So uh, how old were you when you moved to uh, Vermont? Oh, I was uh, 24, 23, 24. Yeah, and what uh, what inspired that transition there? 
the universe yeah. brought me to Vermont. I had no idea. Living, I lived in Colorado for years and again another lifetime. Um, and I lived in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I had a neighbor that had family in Newport, Vermont, uh-huh. and uh, I was living in Long Island, New York, um, for a, for like about a year. And he he was like, "Hey, you should come up to Burlington, check this out." And I was like, "All right." And I came up, and I right away knew. Knew that I I loved the town partly because because one, uh, Burlington didn't have any Bloods or Crips, and yeah. two, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it was just the hippie culture was was in, you know my mom was a hippie and so I was just like this is heaven. Yeah, what this, year was that? That was ninety four, five, okay. five, six. Yeah, something like that. Crazy. So that that's around the, there. I. Transferred. I was working at J.C. Penney's in uh, <clears throat> Long Island, New York, and I transferred to the J.C. Penney's at the U Mall. Oh, yep. And did that. That's crazy. And so you already skated at this point. Yes. And uh, how'd you how'd you get hooked up at the B side? That was an interesting uh, scenario. I had no idea that I was going to work at a skate shop, but like I said, I was just uh, doing the nine to five job at J.C. Penney's in the, the and I, I was rolling around in Burlington. Like we all do, just kind of like cruising through the streets and stopping into the B side. And uh, do you remember Mike that worked there? Which one? Because I think there was Mike two. was like one of the managers who didn't skate. Oh no, I'm not sure if I remember. But he him. he was working there, and he's like, "Hey, you want a job?" <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This seems cooler than J.C. Penney. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and I'm like, turn in a resume. And so I went back and. Wrote up a re- resume and uh, brought it back. Christine came out. She looked at the resume. Didn't really have that much experience, but it seemed it seemed like that was the, uh, the that's what they were looking for. And I think at the time, and this is this is I've kind of like thought about this. I think that there were people on the skate team that that were that were just kind of like hanging out and not really working or they yeah. were stealing something, <laughs> yeah. and they were trying to get somebody in from the outside. Yeah. I think that that's. I didn't realize that until I was already in the mix. They wanted you to keep a watch. They line. wanted me to be from the outside of the scene, and I didn't realize. That. I'm just like, okay, I'm gonna work at a skate shop. This is dope. Mm-hmm. But then when I when I got there, I definitely got that vibe where I was like, who are you and where are you from? You know, because yeah. there was there was a tight crew already. You had mm-hmm. Zach Ebers. Yep. With uh, the dreads. With the dreads. Yeah. You had Christine, and he was the manager at the time. And then you had Jay Rabine. And this whole crew sat near me, and there was me, this random skateboarder from somewhere. And yeah. it was it was interesting at first because I didn't really know how I fit in the scene at yeah. all. I can relate because, I mean, I moved like every year of my life. Exactly. That's, <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. It was time to adapt to that. Yeah, but eventually you probably got a little more comfy in there and started hanging. Um yeah, those were crazy times. Um, and so you worked at the B-Side for a while, pretty much. What, like, were you there? I worked there for like six years. Yeah. And I wasn't there until they closed. I ended up uh, finally going to college, going to CCV, and then got a job at Advanced Music. Yeah, totally. uh, Down the road, which was like perfect, considering I was into music at the time. Yeah, and yeah. that was like my main focus more than skateboarding and being able to go from one mom and pop store to another mom and pop store, that was a blessing. Yeah, you showed sure. me that uh, that Roland eight track, or uh, yeah, I believe not like eight track, but you know the uh, uh, 
drum machine and oh yeah yeah, yeah way back then at the advance and I remember also one day the day that A Bear did the nollie flip off of the loading dock into yeah. there and you came out <laughs> you were working that was a classic clip um, so yeah how'd you like working at advance because that was like obviously similar but a whole different clientele I loved working at advance I mean it was it was one of those things where I at the time got a job at Burton um, and got the job at advance at the same time. And I chose advance in in theory because music was just something that I really wanted to pursue. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like a paid internship yeah. to be able to learn about amps and guitars and be in the music scene. Yeah, probably getting discounts and all that oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, no, too. I got discounts. Um, but it was also just being able to um, take the skill set that I learned at the B-side working in retail and with something that people you know bettered people's lives like snowboards and skateboards when people would come in it wasn't just like selling something you were selling a lifestyle you're selling something that was going to better their lives and so it was very similar to sell a guitar mm-hmm. to somebody than it was to sell a snowboard or a skateboard yeah. and the same kind of vibe when you go into a, a guitar store and you were just starting out there was always that vibe of like ooh, you're intimidated but i felt like that was one thing that i and you might have got this vibe because i wasn't part of a scene and yeah. I did my own thing that I never had that like yeah who are you and I never looked at people at at how good they were I looked at people as people and I really kind of like wanted to um help with their um inspiration I wanted to be able to enable that yeah you're facilitating facilitating yeah absolutely yeah that was dope and uh so yeah pretty crazy this is the guy who sold me my first skateboard my first recording equipment you know you played a little role <laughs> um, so thank you for that yeah totally. um we were speaking on the b-side it seems like uh i'd be i'd be failing everyone if i didn't mention your legendary manual of city hall park uh which is in shred the rad we should pull up the clip of it but um yeah, I, was, I mean, I used to try that every single day, like numerous times. Every, really? Oh, I yeah, didn't every know day. That. Oh, yeah. Probably about 10 years later, I did it one time, but you were definitely the first one I knew who ever did it. Um, and that was legendary. Thank you. You know, that was like, um, do you even remember who filmed that? I do. One of the, one of my boys at the time who was, who was just as crazy as A-Bear, I think he was the original crazy A bear, <laughs> Ethan Indorf. Oh yeah. Was I remember skating with him in up the street in this indoor ramp. You remember that half pipe that was in yeah. there during the winter? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it, and was, it was. And he had some clips and shed the rag. He had some clips too. too, and he you could like grab the pole that was like up on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah. We would skate that all the time, and I would just go out and watch him skate, and he was just like he was gnarly at the time. Yeah. I mean, he went for it, um, and he he actually told me it's like yeah, we got to get that manual on film I'm like alright let's go and then we went and we filmed it yeah did that take a while or no it was no? the first try because <laughs> oh, I had been doing it you know like yeah. that was kind of my run you know and at the time in Burlington we'd run through uh, Church Street yeah. and run from cops through the uh, through the uh, through pigeons and everything that. yeah <laughs> that was when the cops did not like skateboarders at all and yeah. you would constantly be running from officer the or <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that was so hilarious that like finally like at one point Officer Boar's mustache was like some type of fundraiser or something. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do. That was so random. A little handlebar mustache. Yeah, he was such a prick. Um, <laughs> uh, and then people tried to tell me years later, like, no, Boar was a good guy. It's like, well, that wasn't my experience. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> yeah. he, he, he picked on the skateboarders. Yeah, and skateboarding like, was a different time back then, oh, I felt fuck, like. Yeah. 
I mean, that was why we went to the meetings to try to get a skate park because people were just getting sick of getting their yeah. boards confiscated and having to pay what was a fifty to a hundred dollars to get your your yeah back. they take your board fifty dollar ticket yeah and uh, it's funny I actually still have the newspaper clipping if I can find it we'll put it up but uh of one of the um, skate park coalition meetings and we're in front of city hall and you can see you and you're standing there holding like a big sign up and everything oh yeah no I remember going to the meetings with uh, Adog and Parker mm-hmm. and uh, and watching videos on concrete parks, how cool and how perfect they'd be. And then they ended up buying a, a the temporary park. And it was just like, well, were you guys even listening yeah. you know, at the time? Temp yeah. park was dope, but we wanted something that, that was going to last. Yeah, I, I the temp park was like kind of right when I was getting going. Um but but the vibe was kind of it was a lot different. It was for one thing. It wasn't there were no like spectators, you know, because it was like out there behind Burton on the uh, Southern Connector. Yeah, that place. Which go. later became the Jersey Barrier spot. But um, you know, it was like you only went there to skate. It's not like you had people riding behind the bike path or, you know, soccer moms or they're like a bunch <laughs> of little kids. It was like you know, it was where skaters went to skate and that was it. Yeah, no, that was that was dope. That was definitely a cool spot. Yeah, um, and so after you were at Advanced Music for how long? Six years. Oh, okay. For that, some reason, six years. Yeah, after six years, you get the itch. Feels like it's time to move on or something. Yeah, no, I guess so. And mm-hmm. then I moved on to, uh, I had, um, at the time I was married, and we were pregnant, and her family is in Rutland, Vermont, and it just made sense to to move down to Rutland and be closer to her family and raise mm-hmm. my daughter. And I transferred from advanced music to a production company called Atomic Audio. Oh, yeah. And so I was able to go into that that job, um, which was crazy. That was like giant production, like Fish and Grace Potter and these yeah, giant we, stages we, we, you see at the waterfront. Yeah, I was going to say we use Atomic for uh, some of the higher ground, like outdoor shows and stuff. That yeah. job, first in, last out probably one of the hardest physical jobs I've ever done I was in my offered life. I was offered a job there and I'm like, no, nope, I've seen what these guys do. That is <laughs> burly. Yeah. So give props to Atomic yeah. and anybody that does stage production because that stuff is no joke. Yeah, I always love to see like the time lapses of when you see like something like that and you're just like, holy shit. It's just mm-hmm. like, people just scurrying all around. <laughs> Giant <laughs> it's it, tree da- op cables. It's dangerous like, too. Oh, it's extremely yeah, dangerous. You're up on these huge lifts and yeah, all types of stuff. The speakers, the subs, everything about it. You're building pyramids and then tearing them down the next day. Yeah, the next night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I always thought it was crazy for some of our, like, Shelburne shows. Um, you know, we'd have a show, and then in, like, three days we'd have another one, but they would build the stage and break it down and build it and break it down because, you know, they probably were doing the same thing in between somewhere. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, nuts. So you started doing, um, when did you start the open mics at Manhattan? Because you did that, that for was years. As, that was as soon as I kind of got the job in advanced music, and uh, I was playing open mics for years during the, like, during the, uh, the B-side era, mm-hmm. while Adog was out spinning, I was out doing open mics and, and kind of cutting my teeth and learning how to play and perform. And it was funny how, like, I'd play an open mic and Adog would spin, and then they'd see me that night, and they'd be like, yeah, that was a dope set. 
And I'm like, yeah, thank you. But they actually met the A-Dog set because I kind of got mixed. They kind of yeah, mixed me up with Yeah, people confuse A-Dogs. you and A-Dog a lot. And they back do then. that with A-Dog. They're like, yeah, that's dope. Like, I didn't know you played guitar. Yeah, and well, because both of you aren't like <clears throat> like white boys and like, or you know, whatever. And both of you are named we, we Andy. Were, you're both we skaters. We were skaters. And we dressed yeah. similar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I remember even confusing the two of you for, like, for a little bit, you know, like obviously way back, but yeah, that's funny. Um, so the open mics actually took off, you know, in that ended up, maybe? That ended up be, becoming like a big thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you'd have that place packed up and I think a lot of people had their first, you know, I know I played there numerous times, but you'd have a lot of people's like first, you really encouraged that to be like their first platform to actually get out and play live. Yeah, I know no, it was, it started out, um... 18 plus I think at Manhattan Pizza and uh, it was it was dope I think I started it with with DJ Transplant he would come out and we would rock a set and he would DJ in between the artist which was pretty unique considering it was kind of like singer songwriter open mic it was open mic but it was it kind of infused some hip hop as well mm-hmm. uh, which I think Burlington at the time is very you know the the scene was very diverse and you always had that cross pollination of hip-hop and music and bands absolutely uh and that went that went for i want to say 16 years all right so you kept the six you just added the one (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, yeah dude that's and so you were driving up from rutland to do that for a long time i would do it um i would work all day and then i would drive to burlington run the open mic i'd sleep in my car and then I drive back the next morning and work again. Crazy. I just loved it. It was a labor of love and be able to be part of 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 that scene and to see sixteen by eleven years later, you'd have people that I hadn't seen in like five years be stoked to come back to Burlington and have that one place mm-hmm. that they knew something was that they'd see people. It was yeah, cool. and that was was a Wednesday night. It was Wednesday night. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was sweet. Oh yeah. Well, thanks for everything you've done for the scene. That was amazing. Um, and so, at what point did you start Second Agenda? Because, I mean, we've, you know, we just had Humble on. we got yeah. Plant coming on tomorrow. Um, you know, we've had SK, so it's like, you know, quite a few of the affiliates. Um, but yeah, at what point was Second Agenda formed, and what was the whole, like, premise behind that? The premise was open mics, meeting SK at an open mic, because he was kind of rocking with this, uh, this guy that played guitar named Joel and uh, Scotty started working at Liquid Energy, mm-hmm. and he, that was kind of a place where I was doing live shows um, yeah. at Liquid Energy, like some of my first live shows on Church Street, and he wanted, we just started collaborating and, and working together, and um, I was more singer-songwriter in, like in, in a way where I wasn't really doing too much hip-hop, I was doing kind of like, uh, I would say, just kind of singer-songwriter songs, and it was fun. Mm-hmm. And he started to do kind of lacing the songs with with sixteens. Uh, yeah. And next thing you know, he's like, "Yeah, I got it. I know this DJ. We should work on that." And then the band just started coming together. We had a drummer, Jeremy Sicily, and then we had a bass player who I uh, had a, a music class at CCB with, Jeff Thompson. And then all of a sudden, it was just a it was just this kind of creative band where some of the songs, most of the ideas were mine, but I'd bring them to the band and. I really didn't know what I was doing a lot of times. I didn't know. I, I played in a lot of alternate tuning, so I didn't know what chords and what mm. key I was in. But the bass player was just very humble enough to be like, just figure it out on his own. And the drummer was just mad talented. And then Transplant would just bring that that whole other vibe. And he wanted to do 16s as well. So we 
we just kind of balanced a lot of things and made it more of a community-based kind yeah, of yeah. project. Like a bit of a hodgepodge. Yeah, and it wasn't really, it wasn't really like trying to do anything other than just make music together. I think in Burlington, it wasn't really about making money anyway. Yeah. So it was just about about being creative and and connecting and and I think you'll you'll get a lot more about that from Transplant because yeah. he he was a very um, as much as I was kind of like the spearhead of, of the music, he really created the idea of connecting and the interconnectedness and all of those concepts that really kind of I just blew my mind because I had no idea what that was about at the time. Um, and I just give him props for, for teaching me a lot about the interconnectedness of everything and how we could all connect and work together and the infinite possibilities, as yeah. you would say. He's going to be fun to talk to. Yeah, but, um, no doubt. He taught me a lot about that, and that really helped that band uh, become, a, uh, I think, more of uh, about everyone and not just like the, the main, hence it was Second Agenda. It started out Andy Lugo in Second Agenda and eventually moved into Second Agenda because yeah. it just felt more natural to do it that way. Yeah, what was the basis? Like, how'd you come up with that name? Second Agenda. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know, but for the people at home. <laughs> Second Agenda is just an ulterior motive in a way and just really calling out the ulterior motive in society during the Bush era mm-hmm. and seeing the the suits and the, wolf, the, the wolves in suits, you know, just kind of like we, we, we felt as we were moving into the Iraq War and 9-11, right after 9-11, there's a lot of music about that. Yeah. And kind of being in a town where we had time to think, not being in Boston and New York and like being in the hustle of bustle, we mm-hmm. were at, chilling at coffee shops like the Radio Bean and, and conversing about things. And so we had time to think about, I think, yeah. what was really going on with 9-11 and what was really going on with, with the Iraq War. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that the second agenda was just kind of calling out yeah. that idea um, however Plant could probably describe <laughs> yeah. it a little bit more it's elaborately like a, it was like a witty way to be radical and yes. like yeah. do it with it where it was like it was in your face but also like in creative ways and yes. like not just like bitching <laughs> yeah we were I mean this is a time yeah. of Rage Against the Machine we weren't necessarily an angry radical band we yeah. were more of a band that wanted to walk around oppression we wanted to see where we could go around it and not go right into it like rage. We wanted to kind of like go in, in as Jeffrey would say, in the ethereal ways, you yeah. know, understanding that the, the universe is giant and the universe can be, you know, formed through connectedness and and uh, collaboration. Yep. Um, so, yeah, you guys made uh, Instinct, which was in a piece of time on the talent section yeah which I was forever hyped on uh, that just went so well the way the whole edit flowed together and everything and that was a classic yeah so that was dope um, yeah tell me a little bit about how that song came together if that you can was remember. right after 9-11 and that was Scotty and I were working at the poster shop on Church Street I don't know if you remember the Beyond the Wall yep, yep. <laughs> we were working there and it was dope. He was the manager, and I'd come in, and, and we would... It's one of those places that wasn't really that busy, so we'd be like, let's write a song. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would write the 16, and I had something, and we'd literally... I'd bring my guitar, and we'd literally go out on Church Street and play it for people, and then we'd go back to work. Yeah. And uh, set, uh, Instinct was inspired by the idea of a lot of the children that were left without parents from the 9-11 Towers. Mm. Uh, one of the therapy... Uh, 
one of their therapies was to take some of their worries and bury them so that they can move on from mm. from the trauma and so the barrier sorrow that's where that lyric came oh, from wow. I didn't even know that so it was, it was kind of inspired I and mean, not lyrically completely because it was also inspired a lot about like what Plant talked about and mm -hmm. the, the ethereal ideas um, but mainly barrier sorrow was inspired by that story mm -hmm. you're like mind over matter must be the missing link yes <laughs> <laughs> that was dope um, yeah I was hyped on that and then so yeah if you haven't seen Piece of Time I mean go check it you'll know exactly what I'm talking about but then also you went to Jamaica and it was at Bob Marley's grave or at his house at his house at his house Nine Mile alright is where you wrote Bob Lives yes that was a crazy time yeah. I, I got married in Jamaica and I wanted to, and at the time in Burlington, there, are, there was a, lot, a reggae movement with mm -hmm. a lot of Rastas, Rastafarian uh, culture. And that was one thing that I really wanted to explore and just like jam with a Rasta from Jamaica. I wanted to play and make music with a Rasta from Jamaica. So I went there to Jamaica and we, we took a trip, a uh, local uh, driver brought us to Nine Mile, Jamaica, in the hills of Jamaica, right above Kingston. And I brought my guitar, and on the way there, I wrote part of the lyrics. The road may be bumpy, but the view is sure Chris. And Chris is, like, beautiful yeah. and, and patois. And uh, I brought my guitar up there, it, and it was amazing. It's a little compound, and they give you a little tour, and you walk, walk you up to his mausoleum, and you sing songs. And uh, I went down, and there's a little place where you can eat food and a picnic table, and... Um, there was uh, a garden that said Bob lives because they believe he lives in his music. Yeah. And I, this, 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 I'll never forget this poet, this Jamaican poet, all dressed in white, came out. And he's like, "What go on? My name's Aru," and he and he sang the the Jamaican national anthem. And then we ended up jamming and just freestyling, and uh, that's when the song kind of came together. Bob lives. Still. And I was able to bring it back to Burlington and then bring it to the band, and then we, we did it and recorded it. Awesome. Yeah, we actually ended up using that song in Family Tree. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, which is sick. Yeah, so thank you for that. Yeah, that just must have been such a euphoric feeling, you know, just being up there. and. It was. It reminded me a lot of Stowe. Oh, yeah? <laughs> it really did. But a lot of farmers, everybody up there lived on rainwater in Kingston. They were away from the tourism, so you truly got the feel of uh, Jamaica and Jamaicans that lived away from Babylon. Mm. Uh, the Iru, the poet, didn't even have a job. He lived, they let job provide. So he was he was truly following, trying to follow the Rastafarian way. And to to be able to, to connect with people at that level that were living that lifestyle, not that I wanted to be Rastafarian, I was just intrigued by it. Mm -hmm. And to be able to live that lifestyle and just to meet people that were gardening and growing their own food and living off of rainwater and living that life, reading the Bible every day. You know, it's just everything Bob Marley talked about was amazing. And then to be able to make music with them mm -hmm. at that level was fun. Was it intimidating to go to because you hear all these stories about Jamaica and how like as an outsider it could be dangerous? Not if you that. have a guitar. Yeah. If you have a guitar, in my opinion. Yeah. Just being able to be a musician and be able to kind of roll through because when we were in the cities there was it was third world country there was people coming up to you wanting to to money from you and seeing you but if you have a have you had i noticed i always had my guitar on my back mm -hmm. right away there's a certain like you send a message that you're not a walking dollar sign that you actually are you have a 
a deeper soul than that, I think. I don't know what it is. I yeah, just that you're, some... uh, you're someone that's out to create, and, like, a lot of musicians aren't necessarily that wealthy, because, you know, it's like... That, that's true. Until you, until you break through, <laughs> which a lot of people never do. Um, and by breakthrough, I just mean financially. Um, yeah, you, you're, it's not like you're sitting there rocking a Rolex or, you know... Exactly. <laughs> gold yeah. and all that stuff. You're definitely rolling with a guitar, and that, there's something about that that just kind of kept the vibe chill and... I think that it's dangerous everywhere. That's the one thing I learned going to Jamaica. A lot of people are like, you got to be careful. It's their old country. It's dangerous everywhere. Everywhere you go. Yeah, this, they, when I went to Colombia the first time, like even my dad and everyone was like, don't do it. It's sketchy. It turned out I was fine, but, you know, you can find trouble wherever you go. Exactly. That's I mean, kind of what I found. There's trouble on North Street if you wanted to, <laughs> so, you know, um, subjectively. But uh, speaking of guitar, so you, I was always curious, was that Spitfire sticker the same one for all those years, or did you have to, like, take it off and add a new one? I sometimes take it off and put it on the other guitar. Oh, okay. So, yeah, if I, and, like, right now, I can't find that fire yeah. sticker. I, I find other color ones. Like, I mm -hmm. have a new new guitar. I have this the Spitfire up here, yeah. but I haven't found the actual fire emblem. If anyone out there has uh, the Spitfire flame bigger the better the bigger the better yeah. <laughs> holler at me get that on uh, Andy's new guitar um, so yeah at this point so now you're living down in the Rutland area mm -hmm. yep and what are you you're still playing a lot of gigs right I, see. I, was, I was playing with Second Agenda and I was working at Atomic and I ended up getting laid off from Atomic there's a there's a thing called stick season down in southern Vermont where you know, the, the tourism is very big in, like, Killington area, and mm -hmm. there's a certain time where it's, everything just slows down. Um, my ex-wife is working in Killington, and she's like, hey, you should try to do happy hour. And I'm like, living in Burlington, all at I did the, was... At the mountain there? At the mountain. Yeah. All I did was uh, original music mm -hmm. and didn't play any covers. And in that area, it's like, it's the opposite. Yeah, everybody they, they wants covers. Yeah, the rock from the 80s. Yeah. And stuff. yeah. <laughs> the Rolling Stones and... <laughs> But I was like, why not? I'll, I'll give it a try. I was on unemployment at the time, uh, which during six season, stick season, that's kind of how, how it is down there. And then from that point, I was playing in Second Agenda, and then I found a band in Killington called Dirty Boost, and we became like kind of like a cover band. Oh, okay. Um, but we still played originals, mm -hmm. and it was kind of like doing a little bit of both, and I ended, ended up actually doing music full-time for... For like eight years, nice, which was crazy. Yeah, that was a ride. Yeah, I mean, it was it was probably really fulfilling at the same time. Once your passion becomes your job, and almost like you got to really try hard to make sure that you don't lose that fire of it, right? It was hard towards the end. It was like one of those things because there's so many ups and downs when you're an entrepreneur and you're doing it all yourself and you're managing and you're booking and you're doing everything. Yeah, it just it, I can't imagine what it's you're talking a lot. about. It's, exactly, <laughs> it's a lot of hustling and a lot of. A lot of playing golf courses and pubs that you don't want to play, yeah, just because you need get that check. check. Yeah, and that really kind of a soul sucking. Mouths to feed. <laughs> that was that was tough, and that that's when I decided that I was I was just going to try to get a nine to five again, and just let music be something fun and something mm -hmm. that wasn't necessarily about the money. Yeah. Now uh, you were one of the first people, if not the first person that I know that was like looping and like one doing the one man band thing you know like you'd beatbox you'd record that and then you know and you do it all out live like what inspired all that that was uh during the the uh liquid energy days there was a 
there was a guy named Joel Driscoll who did that. Yeah. Do you remember Joel? Yeah. Yeah, he was Joe Driscoll. Yeah, he Joe. Was, he was dope, and he was just like, wow, you can do that. And, and working at the music store, I was able to. I kind of had to learn the pedals. I had to learn to sell them, so yeah. I'd have to figure out how to use a looping pedal. So it was really, I think, if, working, if I didn't work in advanced music, I don't think I would have been as into it. But I really was, that forced me to learn how to use a pedal. So if I wanted to sell a loop pedal... I could show somebody, and then and then from there, it just kept going. Also, if like you're doing a set and uh, someone in the band calls out, you feel like <laughs> I got this. <laughs> I got oh that. yeah, no, that's, uh, that became my drummer for a while too. Yeah, yeah to have drummer and You'd bass player. Totally self-sufficient in that realms. Yeah, which it still still is. If anybody's yeah. out there that's a singer songwriter and that has a band, I think loop pedals are key. Because in in the sense, if you want to pursue music, being a professional musician musician for like eight years. You kind of have to realize. You have to realize that you, it's not always the band's not always going to be there. And if you can do it on your own, mm-hmm. you're going to be able to to uh, do more gigs and continue. For example, like a singer songwriter right now um, who's multi talented. We give props to Joshua West, yeah. who does that right now, which is amazing. He can do solo gigs. He can do duos. He can do band gigs. Mm-hmm. He's in a band called Annie in the Water, and we're actually playing with his band. Um, at higher ground at the end of the month on the 28th okay we're opening for his man in another band from brooklyn called sundub january 28th january 28th higher Higher ground reggae some some fun reggae music check it yeah i actually just saw a post shout out josh i saw a post that uh he put i guess uh at a show that he had got canceled and this post was like if anyone wants a single a duet a group exactly he's He's got that model if you want to make it in music you got to be able to like bring pivot you have to pivot Mm -hmm. you have to do it and i did that for years but i didn't realize i was doing i just knew that i started out solo and i didn't want to think that if the band wasn't there i couldn't do the gig the show always must go on especially if you're doing it full time which i think he is yeah and you kind of have to do that Mm -hmm. yeah it's like uh it's just that classic thing like whoever's able to step up you know we'll get it oh yeah no, totally i think he ended up playing at the zen barn okay friday nice nice yeah josh is the man so yeah i'm looking forward mm-hmm. to that show 28th everyone should definitely go check it out and now uh, will that will you be playing with a band or is your set solo or uh it started out solo but i do have a group i play with my girlfriend taryn i have right. a girlfriend taryn. Shout she plays out taryn. Right. the uh, guitar bass and uh, Andy K, uh, Anthony Karikas, who plays percussion. So it'll be a trio. Nice. And we'll be opening for Josh's band, which is a six-piece band with horns. Oh, sweet. Which is going to be pretty dope. But yeah, so is that a... the same setup as uh, from A-Dog Day? Sort of. Okay. Sort of like for but Andy will be on percussion. Okay. Yes. Yeah, you guys were the first ones to go on, I believe, at Nectar's. Yeah, right? on yeah that was Day. fun. Yeah, that was dope. You guys crushed that set. So yeah, talk a little bit about just like your relationship with Andy over the years, because I know you guys were always tight and had like a mutual admiration for each other. Yeah, definitely. It was amazing to see. I think watching the Hannah episode, shout out to Hannah, um, him coming into the B-side, I'd already been working there and I knew him and you could not know a dog considering he had pop at the time. Yeah. Anybody that'd see him skate down the street and just see his all, he'd be like, well, who is this? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's, he just started working there and he was just like such a humble dude. He was so mellow and chill and no judgment mm-hmm. and, and, but very focused at the same time. I think at the time during the snowboard era where everybody was partying, 
their butt off. Um, A-Dog would just be, you know, he would roll out a lot of times where people would be at a party and he would roll out and go to his house and DJ and collage and watch skate videos. And he had no problem doing that by himself. Yeah. And it was just really cool. And I think that that's part of the reason why, one huge reason why, one, he was so talented and so good, but why he got so far is that he kept his nose clean and he was caught always grinding and doing what he loved and he didn't he didn't need to prove anything to anyone it yeah was amazing. He, i feel like he gave everybody like a clean slate and it wasn't about what can you do for him and it was just you everyone Definitely. just felt so connected to him like you know re- regardless of who you were he just embraced everyone so yeah he was he was an amazing individual definitely know, feel like i try to embody that you know as much as possible because you just see that's just a happier way to live your life. <laughs> you know, it's like, if you can, you yeah. know, and I, I see that. I see people, you know, in your generation that definitely took those traits and saw how he rolled. Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing to see, you know, to see it continue. Yeah, I think uh, another thing that's tough for people is like, if you're always so kind and then you get burnt, you know, you get someone who you just give an inch and they take a mile or whatever, it tends to make people want to kind of clam up and be a little bit more skeptical of people, you know? So, I mean, I can understand that side of things, but I yeah, do believe definitely. that there are more good people out there in the world. It's just that the, yes. the evil is like, it sells more. So I agree. You and, know. Yeah, no, I agree. There's more. That's one thing I tell my daughter. There's more good people in the world than there are bad people. And mm-hmm. I definitely know that to be true. Yeah. And uh, don't take for granted the good people in the in the world and out there. You know, tell your friends you love them. That's a, <laughs> it's become one of our uh, favorite sayings over here. But um, yeah. So now you're you're down in Rutland. You're doing the band with Taryn and with Anthony. With AK, he's up AK. here in oh, okay. Burlington. Okay. Uh, we actually have a band practice tonight for Higher Ground, which okay. I'm pretty stoked to be able to do both because that's the one thing coming from. Rutland, it's being able to, you know, make sure that I'm able to still travel and then be able to do things up here. And then to, it, it, it seems to be working out for yeah. the most part. It's really not that far. I mean, yeah, it's a couple hours. It's about an hour and a half okay. Vermont driving, which mm-hmm. you might see a couple cars in front of you. Yeah, <laughs> like, although in the winter, I got to say, I, I hate winter driving. Winter can be tough. Yeah. Definitely. Just got to take it slow. <laughs> No doubt. Um, well, I don't know if there's anybody that you uh, feel like we need to make sure we give shout-outs to here. Or I know we want to get uh, get you to jump on and play a tune or two for <laughs> us, if you will. I've been looking forward to that. Um, yeah, that'd be dope. But yeah, I just also want to just thank you for everything you've done for the scene through the years. And, um, you know, and just always stayed true and been real, you know. It's, uh feel like it uh, shouldn't be that hard, but for some people it's, you know, life goes and they lose sight of their passions and, you know, it's just, I feel like as you get a family and it get, you get older, just becomes a little, I'm not even going to say it becomes harder, it's just like you have to focus more to find the time to do these certain things and like really be about it, you know, like you really have to be into it because you know, life, <laughs> you get, you get out of your job and you're tired and you could very easily be like, Oh, I just want to go sit on the couch or, you know, whatever, whatever. But to have that motivation, you know, something I admire about uh, the approach you've always had. So I appreciate that. You know, I, I feel the same way. I feel like it's just, it's something you, you just have to kind of follow your passions and believe in yourself. Even during the difficult times, mm-hmm. life's definitely not easy. 
Um, and I think that, again, going back to kind of seeing how A-Dog did it, keep your nose clean and uh, follow your passions. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't really need to prove anything to anyone, you know, yeah. and just be the best person you can every day. Yeah. As cliche as that sounds. Because you're the best <laughs> at being you. No one else can exactly. be you. Um, so, actually, let me go back a second now. Do you, are you doing any, like... Um, residencies or anything or where do people find you just on the on the random or on the random like i yeah. said i'm uh, taking a break from music um for that long i'm just kind of like moving into uh doing gigs here and there and not really mm-hmm. i mean i play every day um but it's more on my own time yeah and um i i think that the higher ground on the 28th i think we're opening so it's early so if you want to check it out we'll be opening from 7.30 to 8, it's a, sh- it's a short set, but okay. I'm really excited for that. Um, and that's a Saturday? That's a Saturday night. Yep. And I think tickets are $14 in advance. Nice. So it's not that expensive. It's going to be a lot of fun if you like reggae music, live reggae music. Yeah, yeah, I'll and be there. That's pretty much it. I mean, we're working on some studio stuff, uh, soon to be working on something with Zach Crawford. Oh, sweet. I was working Shout with... out Sky Splitter. Yes, Sky, Sky Splitter. Splitter. For those who don't know, he and uh, SK, Robert, make the intro beat for the show. Dope. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I got some tracks that are going to be coming out here soon over some Zach beats. So. Nice. Yeah, it's He's so sweet. fun to work. Have you worked with him? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I have this uh, song called No Sign of a Truce that I recorded with him just before COVID. And, you know, I'm obviously, like, super critical of what I put out, so I always thought it needed a little bit more. And then, you know, he shut down the Skylab for uh, COVID just because, you know, he has family and he takes care of uh, someone as well who's immune-compromised or something, so. Yeah. But I heard the Skylab's back open, so that's great news. Definitely. Uh, people should hit up Zach Skysplitter on Instagram. And while I have your attention, hopefully I have this whole time. We have. Um, <laughs> Go subscribe to this channel, please, and share it. Share these videos because we want the most people to see it, and I think we're bringing pretty cool people around. Like I always say, I handpick everyone to come on the show, so they're all people who I think are pretty freaking dope. Um, point in case, you yeah. know, the guy who sold me my first skateboard, and, <laughs> yeah, no big deal. Um, so, actually, we should talk a little bit about A9, because you had... Uh, oh, yeah, the studio. Yeah, because you had A9, and uh, we had some good times in there. So, basically, yeah, from what good. I remember, you would be there all the time. And speaking of, like, sleeping in your car, you'd be sleeping in there. I'd sleep and, at the studio sometimes. Yeah, yeah definitely. That was on. That was in the art ditch, district near uh, Arts Riot, right around the corner of the Green Door. Yeah. Right around the corner there, and uh, that started out... Shout out Kyle Rose. Yeah. He was a... He was the man. I worked with him at uh, at Advanced Music, but he recorded okay. a lot of the second agenda music. Yeah, I still work with Kyle it. at Higher Ground. Kyle is the man. He yeah. just he was just gentle giant. He's a gentle giant. <laughs> he's amazing. But he he owned the studio at the time, and he helped facilitate that. He was able to record stuff, you know, at a at a low rate for, you know, a, a poor musician, a starving musician. He was able to make things happen, and a lot of our recordings wouldn't exist if it wasn't for him. So yeah. So uh, you've put out a few albums, right? Mm-hmm. Which uh, you want to just kind of so, run through them? Oh yeah, there's there's the one uh, Second Agenda Connect, which is, was recorded by Jeremy Sicily. Jeremy Sicily, and that would be uh, Scotty Transplant. That's a classic album, still yet to make online. Oh damn! So I still got to put it up. Yeah, we got to get that out it's, there. It's, it's definitely <laughs> it's gonna 
hopefully in the next couple of years it'll come up. Get <laughs> that on there. Hey, hit the comments. Let's, let's connect. See some, let's see some pressure here. Let's get that connected to the internet. <laughs> and then there's a take cover that I recorded most on my own in A9 on a little BR and a little boss recording mm -hmm. station. Uh, and the Bob Lives is on that. Did um, anyone teach you about recording, or was that all just trial no, and error? No, that was trial and error. Yeah. I wanted to. I, I took a class at CCB. It was garbage. Yeah. <laughs> it, it didn't teach me anything. I was like, what is this? It's uh, just kind of like, use your ears. And that's one thing I like about hardware versus software, is there's no windows. You literally are doing everything yeah. from what you're hearing mm -hmm. versus what you're clicking on. So it was more hardware-style recording. And then mastered, I think it was mastered by, by Zach, I believe. Um, or Rob Ostrander, shout out to him for yeah. for mastering some of that. Yaz for singing yeah. the beautiful voice of Yaz on Bob yeah, Lives. I always loved it when you guys uh, would rock live and have Yaz up there. So yeah, yes. shout out, shout to, out Yaz. to Yaz. Yeah, but A Nine was a dope place, and that that was a great place where we did write a lot of stuff. I'd mm -hmm. make a beat, and then Humble and SK would you know. Yeah. Do their you always had it all decked out with the with the cool like lights and posters and you know you go in and you'd be doing the sage ceremony before <laughs> and getting it all ready for it. So that was cool. Oh yeah, no, music is a ceremony to me for sure. It still is. Yep. Um, so you, you said you're working on some more songs now. You have plans to put out an album, or are you just kind of compiling? I think singles compiling. I yep. think that just with the time restraints and 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 not necessarily being able to. Put the amount of money I want to in a in a song. I just work at a song at a time. I just put out a, a song called "Stick and Move" right before COVID, yep, which was I did with Zach and Robot Dog yeah. uh, collaboration, um, and that's that was a fun song that was inspired by the Baltimore riots, and and then working on a new song right now. Um, it's called Firewalk, and then a song that I've, I'd like to play is um, called "Under the Skin." I wanted to, to work on that song in the studio as well. Sweet. So kind of a single at a time. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of where a lot of music's going, um, with people's attention span seemingly becoming less and less these days, you know, the the TikTok phase and whatever, whatever. Um, Definitely. You know, a lot of people don't, they just don't have the attention to sit down and listen to a whole album. So if you put together a bunch of singles, and then, yeah, eventually you can compile them and make it an album, but in terms of releasing them, I like the idea of releasing a single at a time. I do, too. I mean, I think also if you look back at when people were in studios and they stayed there for months, mm -hmm. who could do that now unless you're on, you know, under a label? Yeah, I know. So, that and that's when songs could get the time that they deserved. And yeah. If you don't have that time, you're just kind of like rushing it, I believe, yeah. if you try to do an album that way. Yeah, I was talking time. about it um, on Humble's episode, but like, knowing Shape was huge, because just, you know, <laughs> Yeah, no, I remember that. Being able to go there and just have a studio, because I could have never afford, like, if I added up all the hours there, forget about it. I'd exactly. Have, I'd have to be a rich kid, <laughs> which, for anyone who knows me, knows that's not the case. But, you know, I, to me, it's an honor to sit down and talk with these people who have been so instrumental in my life and in the scene and in the culture, you know, through the years. And it's like just thinking about these things that, like, I haven't thought about some of these things in so long, you know. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just fun to, like, 
find out what people are up to now and what they what their ambitions are, but also like you know learn some of these people who are interested to know about the roots of what happened before. Like this is what's up with the B side. Like if you went to advanced music back in the day, you'd find him. You know, oh like you, you remember the open mics? Like yeah, this was the dude who was doing it. Yeah, and like, no, that's dope. Oh, you've seen Piece of Time, so like you know that talent section and that song, and you've seen Family Tree, so you know. Uh, Justin Bourne calls it, um, what you call it, independent TV, which is kind of what we're running with now, because, you know, it's basically what we're trying to do. It's like, you know, calling something a podcast is a little corny these days, but... Um, it does feel like independent TV, for sure. Definitely. Yeah, trying to take over the airwaves, you know, you can uh, shut off the cable and turn on... Uh, the internet <laughs> or Spotify we're on Spotify now too although I encourage people to check it out on YouTube because then you get to see the video you know we throw in little clips here and there so that's dope yeah um, so talk a little bit about because you're involved in some of those uh, Vermont songwriting contests right um, yes well that was an advanced music singer songwriter contest yes when I was working at advance I did a couple of them I, I and they were they were fun I mean it was just like equivalent to a skate contest you go in and, and do what you do you bring what what you love and and get judged by people that probably <laughs> shouldn't be judging yeah. um and then i did a couple and that's kind of part of the reason why i got the job so anybody that's out there like do as much as you can in in that world for the love of it and not to not to not try something new even if you're intimidated because i was like this would, this would be great great to to share a song and and then realized that it was a lot more intimidating than I thought it was going to be to be able to share a song for people that are actually listening and really cared about what you were doing and then to compete with people from Berkeley and people that were very serious about the craft of songwriting. Mm -hmm. And then when I got the job there, they uh, they asked me if I wanted to run it. So I ran it for a few years and it was just really cool to see behind the scenes how it all worked mm -hmm. and uh, that then to 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 kind of give the ins to people that I knew and not necessarily in the ends as winning, but like, this is, this is what I experienced when I did it. You should try this. Mm -hmm. One of the songwriters that won, uh, a folk song writer that is amazing, who you probably seen on church street, John Holland. Okay. He, he, comp he competed one year and I told him, just make sure that you engage the crowd before you play and just like mm -hmm. connect to the crowd. And then, play your music and he kind of knew that but he needed to hear it yeah and i feel like that was part of the reason why he feels like that it's part of the reason why he won that year and he always thanks me for that and if i didn't do if i didn't compete years before that i wouldn't have been able to give him that advice yeah ha having like more of a personality yes which yeah, is hard I mean, to do when you're a singer songwriter sometimes because you're really sharing your soul. Yeah. And and it's not necessarily as much of an ego thing. It's more of like a storytelling. Not to mention there's so much to remember. Like in terms <laughs> yeah. of, you know, you got to remember how the chords go, okay. how you're hitting certain notes and, yeah, you know, definitely. song arrangement. And I don't know if you were just playing one song or whatever, but if you have a set, so it's <laughs> like it's easy to kind of get in your own head. And forget about just the human element. Of exactly, it. you yeah. want to just play the song, but in mm -hmm. in performance, they look at the, the the judging. There's also looking at at the performance and how you can bring the crowd into it, which yeah. is kind of hard to do. So yeah. that was a big part of it. Totally, and yeah, again, just to encourage people, it's like don't do it because you expect something to come of it. Just mm -hmm. get out there and do it because it's what you want to do. Create and uh, opportunities come. You know, the more you do it, the, the more, more people it. see you out there and.
nothing brings a crowd like a crowd type shit. So, <laughs> you know, you just keep on doing your thing, you know. I mean, you played on Church Street for years, too. That's something we should definitely talk about. You know, you were quite the busker, I guess is the term. Um, although, I don't know that you always even had a case I, out or I anything. I didn't play for money on Church Street. Yeah. There, was, there was kind of bureaucracy. There was some politics going on. You had to audition. and they Get a permit. Get a permit. And I, w- I was more about just connecting. And, and it was really good practice to sing without a microphone mm-hmm. and to kind of work my vocals. And just playing for people... You would you, by putting yourself out there. I'd meet these amazing people. A lot of times, I'd be playing late night, and I, I at the time I lived in an apartment, and I couldn't play late night at my apartment because I had neighbors. Mm-hmm. So I would go. This is back when Burlington wasn't sketchy. <laughs> I would go to Church Street and play until like one, two, three o'clock in the morning on Church Street, and I'd meet these amazing people that would just like a lot of them. You know, were um, hobos or bums or or just people on the road, or, or college kids, they were drunk, and they would just, like, either want to play my guitar, or they'd want to sing, or mm-hmm. and it just kind of brought that vibe. So, to me, at the time, Church Street was, like, Burlington's living room. Yeah, it'd always be cool to, like, bump into you out there, and we'd just start a little cypher or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, what would you say, like, what's the difference between... Let me think about how to phrase this. So, if you're preparing to play a set for a performance... What what do you see as the difference between that and the process of like recording an album? Like, do you have any any different like little tricks or little things that you do differently for one or the other? Or? Prepare, practice. Yeah. Um, preparation for recording an album. Try to do demos. Uh, get in front of a microphone as much as you can in a in a recording situation. Mm. Um, do this. Do uh, something that where you're being recorded. Because that's a whole other world than being in a live situation where it's just an audience. When you're actually being recorded and there's really no audience, it's a different vibe. Yeah, you so, can fully just like get into it and then listen back. And, yeah, I mean, preparation and practice. Like are you taking a lot of notes and stuff or just mental notes? Or I would say just for the most part mental notes. Sometimes I'll, you know, I always have a pad with me. I'll take notes as far as like what I want to do and, and, and then being able to demo stuff, listen back and rearrange it. Yeah. Uh, that's key before you go into a studio and we actually pay. Like, for example, the song I'm working on, we recorded a demo with um, Ian Greenman. Oh, okay. And we're going to take those stems and bring it to Zach and then just do it for real. And it's it's kind of those things we had to rearrange some, do some arrangement after listening to that demo, figuring out the BPM. And then when we get to, to the Skylab, we'll actually have our ducks in a row. We'll be able to like figure out, uh, be more into the performance side of things. Yeah, when you're paying for studio space, you don't want to be figuring it out (laughs) when you're there. You just want to be recording. So preparation, be prepared before you go to the studio as much as you can by doing demoing, even if it's on your own. Yeah, totally. Put your phone up and play, record yourself playing, whatever, take little notes. Yep. Yep. That's awesome. Well, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to hearing you rock some tunes here. Sweet. I know uh, before we do our little outro here, if there's uh, you got some people you want to shout out, I'm sure. And I hate, I always hate putting people on blast like this because it's like, it's all, nearly impossible to remember everyone you want to shout out. But you know, if you want to give it a try, Can <laughs> and, uh, I use my phone. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Right. Hey, hey, we, it is impossible. Hey, the only rule here at Golden Hour is we don't yeah. have rules. Well, I've got <laughs> you. To thank Travis, Thanks, man. Kyle, Sean Mesha, uh, Forrest, Valkyrie, Jeremy Sicily, Jeff Thompson, SK, Humble, Plant, 
Kyle Rose, D. Davis, Yaz, Trevor Jewett, mm-hmm. Josh Cleaver, Zach Crawford, A.K., Taryn, Wyatt, Todd Jeffrey, Simon Plumpton, Face One, Advanced Music, Manhattan Pizza, my daughter Elena, mm-hmm. beautiful daughter, uh, Ryan Faber, Dana Weston, and of course Ada, rest in peace. Yeah, that's yeah. that's quite the lineup right there. <laughs> that's quite the lineup. Um, well, we're going to let you get set up here, and uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. This has been another episode of Golden Hour with a one-of-a-kind guest, <laughs> Mr. Andy Lugo.
Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Andy yeah. Lugo. And we out.